Welcome back to the third episode in our new series of audio briefings, looking at legal and regulatory developments from a corporate law perspective. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney, and I'm joined today by my colleague Ashlyn Carey. We're both professional support lawyers in the corporate and M&A department at Arthur Cox. And we're also joined by Tom Courtney, a partner here and author of The Law of Companies, regarded as the leading text in company law in Ireland. Tom also chaired the Company Law Review Group, or the CLRG as it is known, for 18 years. And this was the group who recommended the structure and content of what is now the Companies Act 2014. Hello, it's nice to join you again. Our Company Law Back to Basics topic for today is Directors' Compliance Statements under Section 225 of the Companies Act 2014. So Ashling, can you please give our listeners an overview on the Directors' Compliance Statement obligation? Sure, Suzanne. Section 225 of the Companies Act 2014 requires the directors of in-scope companies to make an annual statement, called a Directors' Compliance Statement, in the Director's Report that accompanies the company's financial statements. And Section 225 does not apply to all Irish companies. What companies are required to prepare a Directors' Compliance Statement, Ashley? Yes, so the obligation to make a Directors' Compliance Statement applies to all Irish incorporated PLCs, except investment companies, and large private limited companies, which have a turnover and balance sheet total over a certain amount. Unlimited companies are not required to comply with Section 225. Where an in-scope company has Irish subsidiaries, they too will need to include a director's compliance statement in their director's report, or explain why they have not done so. The current obligation was introduced in the Companies Act 2014. However, Tom, This is not the first time a director's compliance statement has been provided for under Irish companies' legislation. Yes, Suzanne. The requirement that the directors of certain companies include a statement in their director's report that the company complies with certain obligations was first mooted by the review group and auditing in its report made as far back as July 2000. Although Section 45 of the Companies Auditing and Accounting Act 2003 introduced a director's compliance statement by inserting provisions into the Companies Act 1990. In fact, those sections were never commenced. And Tom, I understand you are actually involved in suggesting a more proportionate alternative, which now takes the form of the Director's Compliance Statement obligation as we know it. Yes, that's correct, Suzanne. In response to concerns from many quarters that the cost of compliance was disproportionately high to any benefit to be derived from a mechanism seemingly intended to prove a commitment to compliance, the question of their commencement was referred to the Company Law Review Group in 2005, and it recommended that the provisions should not be commenced. Uh, A majority of the CLRG recommended against proceeding with any form of compliance statement, but an even stronger majority recommended a compromise statement if the then minister was determined to proceed with a compliance statement. Section 225 of the Companies Act 2014 introduced the form of compliance statement, which was in fact recommended by the CLRG in 2005. Section 225 specifies the relevant obligations of the company, which must be covered by the compliance statement. Ashlyn, briefly, what are those relevant obligations? Relevant obligations means certain obligations under the Companies Act, breach of which carries a significant penalty and obligations under tax law. The relevant obligations under the Companies Act are those whose failure to comply would result in a Category 1 or 2 offence, in addition to serious market abuse offences, serious prospectus offences, 
and in the case of a trader company, serious transparency offences. So it can be seen there is a form of materiality test applied to obligations under the Companies Act, such that obligations, the contravention of which would be a Category 3 or Category 4 offence, are not relevant to the Director's compliance statement. While the Companies Act obligations make for a long list, they are not so amorphous that they cannot be listed. And so we have worked with many clients in documenting the obligations relevant to their companies. Tax law is, however, another matter. Obligations arising under everything from the Customs Act to the Stamp Duties Consolidation Act and much in between are in scope. And in our experience, it has not been practical for many companies to prepare a conclusive list of all revenue obligations. So those are the relevant obligations which the Director's Compliance Statement covers. But stepping back for a moment, Tom, what are the specific obligations imposed on directors by Section 225 in relation to the Director's Compliance Statement itself? So the obligations imposed on the directors of companies in scope are fourfold. Firstly, to acknowledge that they, the directors, are responsible for securing the company's compliance with its relevant obligations under company law and tax law. Secondly, to confirm that a compliance policy statement setting out the company's policies respecting compliance by the company with its relevant obligations has been drawn up, or if it hasn't been drawn up, saying why it hasn't been done. Thirdly, to confirm that there are in place appropriate arrangements or structures that are, in the director's opinion, designed to secure material compliance with the company's relevant obligations, or again, if this has not been done, specifying the reasons why it has not been done. And finally, to confirm that a review has been conducted during the financial year to which the director's report relates of any arrangements or structures referred to above that have been put in place, or if this has not been done, specifying the reasons why it has not been done. Thanks, Tom. That's very clear. We might look at each of those components separately. Firstly, in relation to the compliance policy statement, the legislation does not prescribe what a company's policies must be. So how does this work in practical terms for companies? It's important to note that it is acknowledged that the directors have a role in determining what policies are appropriate to their company, since, as you mentioned, Suzanne, no statutory definition of policies is provided, and therefore it's appropriate to consider the ordinary meaning of the word. In practice, many people refer to policies and procedures in the same breath. In fact, they refer to two very different matters. A policy is a course or principle of action adopted or proposed by an organisation or an individual. In contrast, a procedure is an established or official way of doing something. In its report on the originally enacted but not commenced Director's Compliance Statement, the CLRG was satisfied that one of the chief factors giving rise to the high costs of evidencing compliance was the specificity and prescription surrounding the requirement to have procedures that were designed to ensure compliance with the company's relevant obligations. It's important to recognise the distinction, therefore, between policies and procedures. And in drawing up a compliance policy statement, companies should state the company's policies as regards compliance with their relevant obligations. In practice, the compliance policy statement generally takes the form of a short, concise document expressing the company's commitment to complying with its relevant obligations as an express policy of the company. So it's clear that the obligations on directors are not simply confined to a statement in the director's report. This is an ongoing requirement for directors throughout the financial year. Which leads us on to the second aspect, 
putting in place appropriate arrangements or structures to secure material compliance with the relevant obligations. Tom, this requirement to confirm that appropriate arrangements or structures have been put in place is often regarded as one of the more onerous aspects of the obligations. That's true, Ashley, but in fact, the original form of director's compliance statement was very much more draconian and proposed requiring confirmation that a company had internal financial and other procedures in place designed to secure compliance. Instead of procedures, the requirement is now that the directors confirm that the company has in place appropriate arrangements or structures. Of course, another term for arrangements and structures is controls. That is, the controls that the company have in place to try to ensure that it does not act in breach of its relevant obligations. There are a number of provisions in this regard that are helpful to directors to be able to say that they do have appropriate arrangements and structures. So subsection four provides that the arrangements may include reliance on personnel, internal or external, with suitable expertise to support compliance. So this means that the directors can take into consideration the fact that the company either has professional employees or buys in professional expertise to advise on the company's relevant obligations. So to my observation earlier as to the difficulties in producing an exhaustive list of tax obligations, the control adopted by many companies in relation to tax law is their reliance on both internal and external tax or finance professionals who are fully familiar with the company's operations and the heads of tax relevant to those operations. Having a head of finance with taxation expertise would indeed be a significant structure within a company that's designed to secure compliance with tax law. And the third aspect is that the directors must also confirm that a review has been conducted during the financial year in question of the arrangements or structures that have been put in place. This review must take place annually, and we are seeing that many companies will address this at board meetings during the financial year, keeping compliance on the agenda, so to speak. The review required is of the arrangements and structures that are in place, but of course the opportunity should be taken annually to check whether there are any new relevant obligations and to ensure that there are appropriate controls in place for those obligations. One of the noteworthy aspects of Section 225 is that many of the obligations we've been discussing are on a comply or explain basis in the legislation. In practical terms, this means that there is no absolute requirement to provide positive confirmations in relation to the compliance statement, the structures or arrangements, or the review of those structures and arrangements. The directors may set out reasons in the director's compliance statement as to why any or all of those obligations have not been complied with. For example, in the director's compliance statement, the directors of a subsidiary company may explain that they are relying on compliance arrangements and structures that are in place at group level and which extend to the subsidiary company in question. That's right, Suzanne. What we have seen in practice is that most companies will comply with the requirements and confirm their compliance with the requirements. Finally, it's important to be aware of the consequences of failure to comply with the requirements under 225, that is, to comply or to explain is a Category 3 offence under the Companies Act, attracting a term of imprisonment of up to six months or a fine of €5,000, or both. Tom, I know you have some additional points to add in this regard, which may be of comfort to directors. Yes, it's important to note that the only criminal dimension to the director's compliance statement regime is where the directors of a company in scope fail to either comply or explain, as you mentioned, Suzanne. It follows that there is no offence created by Section 225 where, for example, it transpires that the arrangements or structures 
which were put in place were inadequate and did not operate to prevent the company from breaching one of its relevant obligations. It's also important to note that Section 225 creates no civil liability for directors. So if it transpires that the policies adopted or the arrangements and structures put in place were inadequate, neither the company nor any other person is conferred by Section 225 with any right to sue the directors. This is, of course, without prejudice to any other remedies the company may have against the directors, for example, for breach of their fiduciary duty. My final advice is not to stray beyond the requirements of Section 225. Directors are not required to say, for example, that there have been no breaches of relevant obligations during the prior year and should not say that since in setting such a precedent, one could create a hostage to fortune in a year where there might have been an inadvertent or technical breach of a relevant obligation. Thank you, Tom. I hope that our listeners have found that helpful. Before we finish up today, we're going to move on to some recent updates and developments that may be of interest. In the area of non-financial reporting, the European Commission published a proposal for a new EU Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which, if implemented, would introduce new mandatory rules for sustainability reporting. In particular, the proposed directive would extend the scope of current EU non-financial reporting obligations to all large EU incorporated companies and to all EU listed companies. Separately, the European Commission has published for consultation a draft delegated regulation supplementing Article 8 of the EU taxonomy regulation by specifying the content and presentation of information to be disclosed by companies subject to the EU non-financial reporting directive concerning environmentally sustainable economic activities and the methodology to comply with the disclosure obligation. This consultation closes on the 2nd of June and the final version of the Delegated Act is currently planned for adoption by the end of next month and due to apply with effect from the 1st of January 2022. One interesting update from a corporate law perspective is that the government has extended the interim period under the company's Miscellaneous Provisions COVID-19 Act of 2020 to the 31st of December 2021. The Act made a number of amendments to the Companies Act, the majority of which apply on a temporary basis during the interim period. The amendments introduced practical solutions to enable compliance with certain requirements under the Companies Act, which were proving problematic for some companies as a result of the pandemic, for example around the holding of virtual general meetings and the execution of documents under seal. That concludes this episode in our new series of audio briefings. If you have any questions on anything we discussed today, or if there's any particular issue you would like to hear more about, please feel free to contact Tom, Suzanne or me, or your usual Arthur Cox contact. We will be back with a new episode next month. In the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye.